This is CME on ReachMD. This CME activity titled, Targeting TSLP in Severe Asthma, a Case-Based Exploration for the Pulmonologist, is brought to you by the American College of Chest Physicians and supported by an educational grant from Amgen Incorporated and AstraZeneca. Before starting this activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Hello, and welcome to another CHEST webinar. Today, we will be talking about targeting TSLP and severe asthma, a case-based exploration for the pulmonologist. My name is Dr. Stephen Doyle, and today we have Dr. Navitha Ramesh and Dr. Sandhya Karana joining me. So our learning objectives today are going to be to evaluate the impact of TSLP on asthma, clinical manifestations, symptomatology, and disease course. We'll also be review the evolving and expanding evidentiary base for monoclonal antibodies in severe asthma treatment calculus. And finally, we will design an individualized evidence-based treatment plan for severe asthma that incorporates both the patient voice and empower shared decision-making. As I said, I'm Dr. Stephen Doyle. I'm an assistant professor of medicine and the associate program director of our pulmonary critical care fellowship at Corwell Health West and Michigan State University College of Human Medicine in Grand Rapids, Michigan. So to get started, Asthma is a chronic disease state characterized by a history of respiratory symptoms, such as wheezing, shortness of breath, chest tightness, that have two main components. They vary in time and intensity, and then they have variable expiratory flow limitation. It's estimated that approximately 262 million people were affected with asthma in 2019 worldwide. That led to approximately 455,000 deaths worldwide. In the United States, this approximately affects 25 million people in 2021, which correlates to about 7.7% of the population. With this many people, asthma can clearly be a large healthcare burden. Um, and it's projected that over the next 20 years, there will be 963.56 million US dollars, both direct and indirect costs, that will be incurred because of asthma. In addition, it'll lead to 15.46 million quality adjusted years lost. So the prevalence of asthma has been increasing over the past couple decades. Back in the early 1980s, we had a prevalence of around 2%, 2 to 3% that increased closer to kind of around five and a half, six percent in 1996. Since then, um, our current asthma prevalence has increased again, up to where it is right now, just at about under 8% here in 2021. This has also led to an increase in healthcare utilization and ER visits, even though there has been a slight downtrend over the past couple of years, we're still numbering over 62.6 ER visits per 10,000 people. Um, well, that was back in 2010, and now it's down to 46.5 per 10,000 in 2019. Our hospitalization rates have decreased as well, um, and those are running at about 5.2 per 10,000 people. So we have seen a decrease in both ER visits and asthma hospitalization over the past few years, but it's still a very large healthcare burden. So with asthma, it's such a multifactorial disease 
that we always want to talk about the asthmatic cascade. These are a group of cytokines um, and immunological cells that interact that cause different symptoms throughout the process. And there's four major components that can be attributed to asthma. We can have an allergic eosinophilic type, which you're going to see on the left side of the screen. We can have a non-allergic eosinophilic type. We can have a non-eosinophilic type. That's really our non-T2-driven inflammation. Our prior ones were T2-driven inflammation. And then you can get structural changes related to this chronic disease process. So starting, we'll look at the allergic eosinophilic pathway. So in this process, there's some kind of allergens that affect the respiratory tract that you inhale. It's going to go to these respiratory epithelial cells um, and get taken up by the epithelium. There's multiple mechanisms at play that lead to asthma symptoms happening. So one of the first things is alarmins get released, such as TSLP, which that itself can go and lead to um, dendritic cells that will help CD4 naive T cells ultimately differentiate to these naive T cells to become Th2 cells. The Th2 cells can then lead to the production of IL-4, IL-13, and IL-5, which can ultimately lead to B cells leading to IgE switching, degranulation of mast cells, airway eosinophilia, mucus hypersecretion, and smooth muscle contraction leading to airway hyperresponsiveness. That is one of the classical findings in asthma. Next, we can have more of a non-allergic eosinophilic pathway. And this can be produced by viruses, bacteria, pollutants, such as cigarette smoke, or any kind of inhaled toxin that you're going to have. These can also lead to alarmins being released from the respiratory epithelial cells, such as TSLP, IL-33, IL-25 which then they can activate the group two innate lymphoid cells, which can lead to the production of both IL-5, which can attract eosinophils and lead to increased production, and also lead to mucus hypersecretion and airway hyperresponsiveness. Now, moving more towards the non-eosinophilic pathways, these are our non-T2 asthmatics, we can have exposure to some kind of environmental insult as well. Ultimately, this is going to lead to an airway neutrophilia. This mechanism is still being elucidated in labs, but it is thought to be that it's related to TSLP being released from the respiratory epithelial cells again that is activating the detritic cells, which then will bind to naive T cells, leading to a TH. 17 cell differentiation, which ultimately this will lead to IL-17A production, which can stimulate the bronchial epithelial cells to produce neutrophilia-promoting cytokines, such as CXCL8 or GMCSF, which will lead to neutrophil production and then airway remodeling by altering the function of these airway smooth muscle cells. Finally, something that happens in our asthmatics are these structural changes that we see. So these mechanisms can include smooth airway muscle cell migration that mediates crosstalk between these airway smooth muscle cells and mast cells. Both of these cells can produce TSLP and inflammatory cytokines, such as CCL11, CX, CL18, and IL6. 
and it can lead to structural changes that develop from that. TSLP can also stimulate human lung fibroblast cells that lead to the production of collagen and promote airway remodeling. So now that we've talked a little bit about what the cascade looks like and what is happening at a cytokine level from a physiological standpoint, what do we mean when we talk about severe asthma? So in 2014, the ERS and ATS developed the severe asthma definition for this chronic disease. What they classified it as is someone that's re requiring treatment for genetic guidelines, steps four or five for the prior year. This is generally going to be a medium to high dose inhaled corticosteroid and a long acting beta agonist, plus possibly a secondary controller medicine. They're going to either require systemic corticosteroids for more than 50% of the prior year to prevent worsening. And despite all this, symptoms are uncontrolled despite these above therapies. But if we're going to classify someone as severe asthma, we need to make sure that it's different than just uncontrolled asthma. So the way that we differ, differentiate from uncontrolled asthma is by looking at the following. Are there poor symptom control based off the asthma control questionnaire or the asthma control test? Do they have frequent exacerbations, uh, two or more bursts of systemic corticosteroids in the prior year? Or is this a more serious exacerbation that requires a hospitalization, such as an ICU stay or a mechanical ventilation? And then despite all the above therapies, are there airflow limitations after the appropriate bronchodilator withhold with an FEV1 of less than 80%? So, and if we try to taper any of these above treatments that we talked about in GINA four or five steps, there is worsening of the symptoms. So now that we know what severe asthma is, let's talk a little bit about what our goals are in controlling asthma. So we want to achieve control. And we also want to reduce for future risk. So when we're looking to achieve current control, that's really looking to address our symptoms. How are people feeling? Look at the reliever medication used. Are they constantly having to reach for their rescue inhaler to provide some kind of reliever support? Are they able to function at a normal level and have their normal activity? And then is their lung function being maintained? And our goal is to reduce future risk is really to try to prevent any instability or worsening, protect the lung function, minimize any medication adverse effects, and ultimately minimize exacerbations that lead to corticosteroid use, hospitalizations, ICU stays, and ablations. So when we're evaluating asthma, it's extremely important that one, we make sure that we have the right diagnosis, especially if someone's not responding appropriately to therapy as you might expect them to. It's important to step back and say, hey, do I have the right diagnosis? Is this actually a severe asthma that I'm treating? Second is to look at the guidelines. Look at the GINA guidelines. Step-up therapy is necessary. And based off symptoms, is the patient on an appropriate level of therapy? Third, check adherence. Have the patient demonstrate what they're doing. Make sure that the correct inhaler technique is going on. Because if they're in properly using the inhalers, they're not going to be getting the adequate response. So teaching and making sure that they're adhering and having the correct technique is paramount. Making sure comorbidities are controlled, such as obesity, GERD, sinus disease, making sure things that we know worsen asthma are controlled. And then finally, especially in the allergic 
um, T2 driven pathway, make sure that our triggers are identified and addressed. We want to make sure if there is an allergic exposure, if there is something that they're constantly being exposed to, are we at a way that we can minimize that or optimize that as best as we can. So when we look at what we consider uncontrolled asthma, there's the uncontrolled asthma, difficult asthma, and then the severe refractory asthma. Generally, our uncontrolled asthma has a prevalence of about 50%. When we stepped up the controller medicines, we can get to a difficult controlled asthma of roughly around 15 to 20%. And once we've ruled out that there's an incorrect diagnosis, make sure it is asthma that we're actually treating, addressed adherence, uncontrolled or controlled these comorbidities as much as we can and eliminated triggers, that's when we actually are talking about the severe refractory asthma, which at that point is going to be less than 5%. So next, I would like to invite Dr. Navitha Ramesh to talk to us more about a T2 asthma case-based discussion. Hello, everyone. My name is Navitha Ramesh. I am a pulmonary critical care physician at UPMC Harrisburg in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Uh, today, I'm, I'm going to discuss T2 asthma, a case-based discussion. So we have a patient, Ms. B. She is a 33-year-old female. Seen, uh, she's being seen in the outpatient clinic. She's just moved to the area. She was diagnosed with asthma as a child. Uh, however, she's been symptom-free from age 18 up until now. She has received two courses of prednisone over the past month for episodes of cough, chest tightness on exertion, um, which improved with as-needed albuterol. The review of systems include rhinitis, nasal congestion, post-nasal drip, occasional early morning non-productive cough, and wheezing, and she does endure some snoring as well. Review of system was negative for uh, gastroesophageal reflux, leg swelling, or chest pain. Her asthma triggers include cold weather and exercise. She has not had any ED visit or hospitalization up until now. Her past medical history includes allergic rhinitis uh, as, as acid reflux. Her past surgical history reveals nasal polypectomy. Her family history is significant for her mother and younger sister with asthma. Her social history reveals one pack year tobacco use at around the age of 22, and there is uh, no vaping history. Her medications include budesonide formotrol, 80 over 4.5 micrograms, two puffs twice a day, montelukast, albuterol as needed, loratadine, and ranitidine. On examination, she is saturating 98% on ambient air. The BMI is 25. She appears comfortable. Significant positives include uh, positive nasal turbinate hypertrophy and maxillary sinus tenderness. Her lung evaluation revealed diminished air movements bilaterally with occasional mild end expiratory wheezing, and she did not have any lower extremity edema. Her asthma control test score in the clinic was 24. The spirometry done in the office revealed an FEV1 over FEC of 81, FEV1 of 3.17 liters. Our total lung capacity was 75% predicted and a DLCO was 112% predicted. So looking at the GINA recommendations for patients with poorly controlled asthma on an inhaled corticosteroid and long-acting beta agonist. So our patient is right now either in step four or step five. So in these situations, the recommendation is to increase the dose of ICS lava to change the patient to a high-dose ICS lava. Thiotropium could be used as well. And so this is what we did with our patient. So Ms. B, again, she's 33-year-old female with a BMI of 25. In the office, her uh, phenotesting revealed exhaled nitric oxide level of 56 parts per billion. 
we evaluated her comorbidities and managed them up uh, in an optimal manner. Tiotropium was added, as mentioned before, and her inhaled corticosteroid LABA dose was increased to 160 over 4.5, uh, two pops twice a day. Inhaler technique was reviewed and feedback was given. Trigger avoidance was stressed and patient was set up for a follow-up visit. So the patient returned three months later for her three-month follow-up visit. And she had mentioned she's had three exacerbations since our last visit, leading to ED visits needing systemic steroids. She did endorse good inhaler adherence, confirmed trigger avoidance, and all her comorbidities were actively and optimally being managed. In the office, her exhaled nitric oxide level again was increased to 71 parts per billion, increased from 56 from three months ago. She had blood work with CBC and differential that showed an absolute eosinophil uh, count of 540. Her blood panel for allergies was negative. So now referring back to the personalized asthma management based on AGINA recommendations, we assessed our patient, we, we adjusted the medications, and now we are reviewing uh, the patient's symptoms. And we did follow the path up until step five. So what's next? So this is a point where we would refer the patient uh, for phenotype assessment and then consider after we've added our inhaled corticosteroid formotrol combination, we would consider a biologic therapy in this patient. So before we move on to the details about biologic, it's important to emphasize that heterogeneity in asthma is not a new concept. This paper titled The Heterogeneity of Asthmatic Patients, an Individualized Approach to Diagnosis and Treatment, this paper was initially published in 1976. Now, today, as we know, asthma has different inflammatory subtypes, which are based off of airway inflammation. The phenotypes of asthma uh, could be eosinophilic asthma, neutrophilic, posigranulocytic, or mixed eosinophilic and neutrophilic phenotypes. When we endotype our asthma patients, there is a type 2 or a T2 high endotype and a non-type 2 or a T2 low endotype. Another way to look at the endotypes, the T2 high is the allergic, it could be allergic or eosinophilic, which include elevated biomarkers such as blood eosinophils, sputum or BAL eosinophils, exhaled nitric oxide, increased serum IgE, increased IL-4, IL-5, and interleukin-13 as well. The T2 low endotype could have two phenotypes, could be neutrophilic or posigranulocytic, and uh, different kinds of um, inflammatory cytokines are elevated in this condition, or the patient could have a mixed endotype and a mixed granulocytic phenotype, which has both increased neutrophils and eosinophils within the lungs. This slide reiterates what was discussed before. It compares the T2 high and the T2 low inflammatory response in asthma. So based on the phenotype of neutrophilic inflammation or eosinophilic inflammation, patients are classified into T2 low asthma or T2 high asthma. This slide was discussed by Dr. Doyle previously, looking at the asthmatic cascade. Um, it is important to understand the cascade because this is, from here is where we talk about the biologic targets in asthma. So as you see here, TSLP or um, thymic stromal lymphopoietin, it's an alarming, it's secreted by the epithelial cells right at the entry into the airways, and it acts on top of the inflammatory cascade, and it regulates several downstream cytokine effects within the lungs. One of the biologics, omalizumab, inhibits uh, IgE, 
Mepolizumab inhibits anti-IL-5. Reslizumab is anti-IL-5 as well. Bendralizumab is anti-IL-5 receptor alpha antibody. Dupilumab is anti-IL-4 alpha, which targets um, both anti-IL-13 both IL and IL-4. And tezepilumab is anti-TSLP monoclonal antibody. So knowing that um, tezepilumab, as you see, acts on TSLP. Again, it's on top of the inflammatory cascade and hence inhibits the downstream effects. This slide here gives us a list of the approved biologic agents for severe asthma and the targets as well. The most recent one is tezepilumab, which was initially approved by FDA in December 2021, indicated for those with asthma over age 12 years who have severe asthma. So when considering a biologic therapy for a patient with severe asthma, there are multiple options. When would you consider anti-IgE and what are the predictors? What are the, when would you consider an anti-IL-5, an anti-IL-4 receptor alpha, or anti-TSLP? So this slide gives us, um, this is from the GINA guidelines. It gives us a recommendation as to the pathway to follow when considering a biologic therapy in patients with asthma. Coming back to our patient, Ms. B, she's again 33-year-old female with T2 asthma. She has high pheno, high eosinophils, and negative allergen testing. The biologic treatments for our pre previous slide, the biologic treatments that are available for her are anti-IL-5, anti-IL-4-13, and TSLP blockade. So this patient was started on anti-IL-5 antibody initially. However, she had two more exacerbations at six-month follow-up. So upon discussing with the patient, uh, again, optimizing all the other comorbidities and re reviewing uh, all the inhaler techniques, a shared decision was made with the patient and the patient was switched to tezepilumab. This brings us to what is tezepilumab and what are the studies that, that have been done to look at tezepilumab in adult, adults and adolescents with severe uncontrolled asthma. So this study initially published in New England Journal had 584 patients with severe uncontrolled asthma and was started on tezepilumab versus placebo. And the study revealed that tezepilumab reduced the blood eosinophil counts, phenol levels, and serum IgE levels in these patients. So phase 2B clinical trial, where patients were divided into three groups, low-dose tezepilumab, medium-dose tezepilumab, and high-dose. And all these groups reduced exacerbation uh, across all the patient groups by 70%. More patients in the tezepilumab group achieved well-controlled asthma, and, uh, as well as partially controlled asthma, at 52 weeks when compared to placebo. This was followed by another study looking at tezepilumab in adults and adolescents with severe uncontrolled um, asthma, looking at 1,000 patients, over 1,000 patients, placebo versus tezepilumab, and it showed a 56% reduction in overall asthma exacerbations with tezepilumab use. This study looks at the change in the baseline pre-bronchodilator FEV1 asthma control questionnaire, Six and the asthma quality of life questionnaire in patient in the same patients who were on tezepilumab versus placebo, and there is significant improvement um, in all three characteristics in the tezepilumab group. In both the pathway and navigator trials, which were both 52 weeks uh, tezepilumab trials looking at the annualized asthma exacerbation rate, both studies showed that using this medication compared with placebo across the phenotypes in a broad population of patients with severe asthma and the showed a favorable results with tezepilumab use. So the annualized, the, 
The asthma analyzed asthma exacerbation rate over 52 weeks in the study was consistently lower in the tazepilumab group than in the placebo group across the various biomarker uh, spectrum. So regardless of the eosinophil counts, the pheno counts, or the IgE level, tazepilumab did show significant improvement compared to placebo. Another slide looking at that is this, uh, the phase three navigators study showed reduction in the all three of the biomarkers, which is blood eosinophils, pheno, and IgE over the 52-week period. And it's interesting to know that within two weeks of, on, of starting tazepilumab, there is a change in the eosinophil count and the pheno level as well. And this change is significant over the 52, uh, it's, it remains consistent over the 52-week period. So both the navigator and the pathway trials showed reduction in interleukin-5 and interleukin-13 levels with tazepilumab. In patients with symptomatic asthma, there was reduction in IL-5. This was shown by a higher dose, an intravenous tazepilumab 700 milligram dose in the phase two upstream study as well. So based on what we know so far, Tazepilumab reduces the blood eosinophil levels, airway eosinophil counts, pheno levels, and IgE levels in patients with moderate to severe and severe uncontrolled asthma. Now, coming back to my patient, Mrs. B, again, 33-year-old female with T2 asthma. She initially had high pheno, high eosinophil, and negative allergen testing. She was switched to tazepilumab from an anti-IL-5, and at three-month follow-up, she remained exacerbation-free. So the summaries for T2 asthma, T2 asthma can be allergic or non-allergic eosinophilic asthma. There are multiple endotypes and each of those has the multiple targets. The biomarkers may overlap and all available allergic therapies are effective in, biologic therapies especially, are effective in T2 asthma. And the selection should be based on the biomarkers, looking at the patient's phenotype and endotype, the comorbidities, the patient preference, as well as cost. With this, um, I would like for Dr. Purana to, to continue the case discussion. Thank you, Dr. Ramesh. Uh, that was an excellent overview of management of uh, type 2 asthma. Uh, I'm Sandy Karana um, at the University of Rochester, Professor of Medicine and Director of the Asthma Center. Um, and my uh, task uh, over the next uh, several minutes is to review management of non-type 2 asthma. So um, this is a patient uh, that um, uh, presented uh, with symptoms of cough and dyspnea for six months, uh, 52 years old, uh, who does not have history of childhood asthma. Her symptoms started after respiratory infection. She endorses frequent wheezing, chest tightness. She's using carbuterol two to three times a week as rescue inhaler. And main triggers are exercise and exposure to smoke. Uh, but uh, several of these uh, symptoms are occurring spontaneously as well. And in the last six months, she has uh, experienced two exacerbations requiring oral steroids, and one of them resulted in an ED visit. In terms of comorbidities, uh, she has gastroesophageal reflux disease, uh, but her symptoms are controlled on a proton pump inhibitor therapy. She also has uh, obstructive sleep apnea diagnosed and has tried to use CPAP, but uh, like many of our patients, has not been able to tolerate it. There's no childhood history of, uh, a history of uh, any atopic disease, including asthma or allergies. Um, she's a lifelong non-smoker, works uh, as an elementary school teacher, um, no pets at home, no family history of asthma or allergies. Her current medications, uh, she's currently on a combination ICS-LABA. The one she's currently using is fluticasone and salmeterol. High dose, 500 slash 50 microgram, one inhalation twice daily. It's a dry powder inhaler. 
Um, she's also taking a leukotriene modifier amount of Lucas, 10 milligrams every night. Omeprazole in the morning, as I mentioned, and albuterol as needed. On exam, she appears comfortable. Um, oxygen saturations are normal on room air. Her BMI is elevated at 34. Nasal exam does not reveal any erythema or nasal polyps. Um, on uh, auscultation, her lungs have decreased air movement bilaterally, but otherwise clear to auscultation, and she has no um, appreciable edema in her lower extremities. This is her spirometry from um, uh, that visit. Um, as you can see, uh, she has a, a pre-bronchodilator and a post-bronchodilator, so spirometry with bronchodilator challenge uh, that's, uh, that was performed. And her FEV1 is, uh, is reduced, that's uh, below the uh, lower limit of normal with a Z-score of minus 2.43. So she has uh, moderately, uh, mildly reduced uh, airflow obstruction uh, with a reduced FEV1 to FVC ratio. But after bronchodilator challenge, uh, this improves significantly uh, and meets criteria for, post -bronchi for a bronchodilator response. Uh, with normalization of her post-bronchodilator spirometry. Also, you can see this here in the uh, flow volume loop and the volume time curve, the separation pre- and post-bronchodilator. So based on this, uh, we assess that she had evidence of um, uh, obstructive impairment with a positive bronchodilator response. So as Dr. Ramesh um, alluded to this uh, GINA stepwise uh, uh, therapy, uh, at this point, she was already on high-dose inhaled steroids. She also was on a leukotriene modifier and was using a short-acting beta agonist. And uh, we started looking at her at, at step five in terms of what else can be done. And uh, this is where uh, we uh, started uh, talking about phenotyping her. So based on her evaluation so far, assuming that you know her comorbidities are best optimized as, as possible, she's adherent to her uh, medications, um, there are no identifiable triggers. Uh, we went ahead and uh, uh, checked the biomarkers, and these are the three biomarkers that we would usually check uh, when clinically phenotyping our patients. Uh, her exhaled nitric oxide level, uh, which is a measure of interleukin-13 activity, was 13 parts per billion, so that's low. It's less than 25 parts per billion, likely low also because she's on high dose of inhaled steroids. Her blood use in a full count was also low at 100 cells per microliter, and her IgE level, total serum IgE level, was 35 with negative uh, allergen skin testing. So, you know, we 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 think that this patient has uh, non-type two asthma, and um, we used to think that uh, non-type two asthma is fairly common and makes up for about 30 to 50 percent of patients with asthma. But uh, uh, there's been recent advances in understanding uh, this particular uh, phenotype. And this is a graph from the International Severe Asthma Registry that was published in 2021, uh, where um, um, this large cohort of patients with severe asthma were uh, phenotyped based on these three biomarkers. And as you can see, there was significant overlap. And what they found was that um, only 12% of patients uh, in this large cohort of over 1,000 uh, participants um, had truly negative, triple negative biomarkers. So um, we believe now that non-type 2 asthma is not as common as we used to think it is. But management of non-type 2 asthma is really challenging, um, and it's for many reasons. You know, while type 2 asthma has been really well characterized, the mechanisms are really well understood, um, non-type 2 asthma, there's no clear definition. 
And recognition is not based on a positive biomarker, but you have to have negative biomarkers. Uh, you have to, it, it have, they have to have pheno, IgE, um, negative allergen testing, uh, and um, no evidence of eosinophilia. And as you know, these are very variable biomarkers. They vary over time. They're affected by anti-inflammatory therapy, and therefore multiple measures are needed before um, we can truly ascertain that a patient has non-type 2 asthma. Within non-type 2 asthma, multiple endotypes uh, exist. Uh, we've already heard about neutrophilic and posigromocytic asthma and the multiple inflammatory pathways that uh, uh, lead to this. And they tend to be um, treatment responses, especially response to anti-inflammatory therapy is, is poor, um, including uh, to corticosteroids. There really are no targeted therapies or were no targeted therapies available. And this uh, remains an area of unmet need. An initial approach uh, to management for type 2 and non-type 2 asthma is really very similar. Um, and we've already uh, talk, uh, talked about it earlier in the, podcast, uh, in the webinar. What are the additional considerations when I'm evaluating somebody with possible non-type 2 asthma? As I said, always look for intermittent eosinophilia, effect of uh, high doses of uh, oral or uh, inhaled steroids masking type 2 inflammation. Um, sometimes uh, we can capture blood eosinophilia only when they're having an exacerbation. So if that's somebody uh, who calls with an exacerbation, I'll try to see if we can get check a blood eosinophil count before they start their oral steroids. Um, sometimes uh, the airway inflammation is not always measurable in the blood. Um, so uh, some of these patients may need sputum uh, induction if it's available at your center. Um, and then uh, within um, the larger umbrella of non-type 2 asthma, we have to consider what is the phenotype. Uh, for example, obesity-associated non-type 2 asthma responds really nicely to weight loss. So what are the advanced therapies I consider in a patient with non-type 2 asthma? Um, Long-acting uh, muscarinic antagonists, there's uh, increasing data um, with this uh, macrolides, which I'll uh, review briefly uh, in the next couple of slides and uh, tezapilumab is the only asthma biologic that is approved for use in severe asthma regardless of phenotype. Bronchial thermoplasty, um, uh, I'm not going to discuss that uh, too much. It's really uh, no longer being recommended by guidelines outside of a registry or a clinical trial. And um, this is uh, data from four's, uh, four phase three clinical trials, uh, including uh, over 900 participants uh, with severe asthma, uh, where uh, they, they show that the effect uh, is uh, um, maintained across uh, uh, increasing eosinophil counts and uh, IgE levels. So even in, in the low spectrum, which the non-type 2 asthma would fall here, um, teotropium or LAMA was effective. The data for azithromycin in uh, use in moderate to severe asthma comes from this large randomized controlled study, the AMAZA study. This was an Australian study of over 400 participants uh, who had uh, persistent symptoms despite use of ICS lava, and uh, they were randomized to azithromycin 500 milligrams three times a week uh, compared to placebo uh, and uh, studied over 48 weeks. And uh, what they found was there was overall significant decrease in uh, the annual asthma exacerbation weight uh, by about uh, 41%. And then uh, when subgroup analysis uh, was, was performed, uh, azithromycin seemed to perform uh, well uh, and had significant efficacy, both in eosinophilic and non-eosinophilic asthma. So this would be something to consider in our patients who have uh, type non-type 2 asthma. 
Um, just uh, keep in mind that these uh, patients uh, need their hearing monitored, uh, QTC uh, checked and monitored uh, during study, and, and safety beyond one year uh, is really not known or has not been documented. And then let's uh, talk about tezapilumab, uh, which uh, targets uh, the epithelial cytokine TSLP. Uh, we've already heard about the uh, cascade um, and the, the inflammatory pathways uh, by Dr. Doyle. Dr. Ramesh reviewed uh, some of the uh, clinical uh, data. So I'll just briefly mention that uh, this uh, was the uh, phase two study um, looking at this was the dose ranging study. Uh, 210 milligram Q4 weeks is what was finally approved by the US FDA. Uh, and there was efficacy across uh, the three doses study. But when they looked at uh, further uh, subgroup analysis based on uh, the type 2 status, uh, tezapilumab seemed to perform compared to placebo quite well, even in the low eosinophil, low phenol, and low um, uh, TH2 status. Similarly, in this large phase three study, that was the pivotal study leading to FDA approval. Uh, there was significant uh, improvement in exacerbations uh, in the overall population, but again, a similar efficacy was seen even in patients who had low use in a full count. And the subgroup analysis uh, again showed that uh, there, there seemed to be a type two effect with increasing um, uh, efficacy with increasing use in a full count and exhaled nitric oxide levels. But even in patients who had low pheno and low EOs, uh, tezapilumab was significantly better than placebo. So this is the algorithm that I consider uh, when I'm uh, evaluating a patient with non-type 2 asthma. Uh, the first uh, uh, question is, is that, as Dr. Doyle mentioned, you know, is it really asthma? Make sure that, um, that we are confirming objectively the diagnosis. Uh, look multiple times uh, for evidence of type 2 inflammation. Um, and then, uh, uh, you know, consider these therapies. Of course, the usual things that we do for all our patients uh, are listed here um, in obesity, weight loss, and a and, uh, better diet and exercise helps uh, as well. And then uh, tezapilumab, uh, this, uh, this place was empty until 2021, and now we have uh, one uh, biologic therapy that's available. So uh, just to wrap up the non-type 2 path, um, severe non-type 2 asthma is less common than previously thought. Uh, there's really no agreed-upon definition. Mechanisms need to be further elucidated. It's not as corticosteroid responsive. No po positive biomarkers. Multiple challenges uh, in management of non-type 2 asthma. Uh, and uh, tezopilumab currently is the only um, biologic that's approved for use uh, regardless of uh, type 2 status. Uh, Dupilumab can be considered in patients who are corticosteroid dependent uh, if eosinophilia cannot be uh, confirmed, but it remains a type 2 uh, biologic. So this really remains an area of unmet need. So I'm going to uh, pass this back on to uh, Dr. Doyle to uh, uh, wrap, it, uh, wrap up the entire webinar, and uh, thank you for your attention. All right. Well, thank you very much for that, Dr. Karana and Dr. Ramesh. That was a great summary on both what is T2 and non-T2 asthma and the challenges of managing both of those patient populations and how we can use guidelines and these phenotypes that we're learning more and more about to provide the best care for our patients. So in summary, um, asthma's prevalence is increasing over the previous decades and it's still a large burden on our healthcare system, both in the United States and across the world. 
it really is important to differentiate uncontrolled asthma from those who truly have severe asthma, which as we discussed previously, is really less than 5% of asthmatics. As time goes on, our understanding is improving and evolving on the asthmatic cascade and treatments and phenotypic analysis is improving with that. It really is important to phenotype these patients and then ultimately direct treatment toward the biomarkers and cytokines that you're finding. Majority of the times, as Dr. Cronus said, it's going to be some kind of T2 asthma. Um, and those are absolutely going to respond differently than our non-T2 asthma patients. Um, and the non-T2 asthmas have much less treatment options compared to our T2 asthmatics. And as Dr. Cronus says, just one out of the six biologicals available are available in those non-T2 asthmatics. So on behalf of Dr. Ramesh, Dr. Karana, and myself, we'd like to thank you for joining us today on this webinar. And thank you for to CHEST for allowing us to present this. Please visit um, chestnet.org for more educational events and opportunities. Thank you all. This activity was brought to you by the American College of Chest Physicians and supported by an educational grant from Amgen Incorporated and AstraZeneca. To receive your free CME credit or to view other activities in this series, go to reachmd.com CME. This is CME on ReachMD. Be part of the knowledge.